I have been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're scheduled to be on chapter 8. We'll pick up there next week. Uh, but given the opportunity we have to be ministered to by uh, these great young people, I wanted to take this uh, time to focus on a, a key passage in Philippians chapter 3, specifically verses 9 through 11. Let's look at that, and I'll give some introduction. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, Just before I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that, that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We have been in Ecclesiastes for some time, so maybe your memory of what the book of Philippians is is a little rusty. So let me do a quick little introduction. Uh, first of all, this was written by Paul. So who is Paul? Well, he was a, a born Jew, Pharisee, as we read earlier, Pharisee of the Pharisees. God dramatically saved him. He was on his way to persecute Christians. Uh, dramatically saved him, called Paul to be an apostle. Uh, an apostle was not some job that someone enters you know, into his job description as a high school senior, you know, looking at the different career options. I'd like to be an apostle. Or, as you might see on some church uh, placards today, our church is pastored by you know, apostle, bishop, the right reverend, so-and-so, okay? There were only a few of these guys chosen by Christ. They saw Christ. Christ appeared to him. Uh, he was, Paul specifically, a minister of the gospel to Gentiles. He would always preach to the Jews first, but he was specifically called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The book of Acts details his journeys in bringing that gospel. And he was frequently attacked by Jews who did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, Israel's king. So who are these Philippians? Kind of sounds like a weird name. Well, imagine if he wrote a letter to the Orwellians. Philippians sounds better than Orwellians, doesn't it? Who are the Philippians? And what kind of relationship did Paul have with them? It goes back to Acts 16, when Paul, on his missionary journey, brought the gospel there. Uh, Lydia was saved. The Philippian jailer was saved. The demon-possessed woman was saved. And these who trusted in Christ testified publicly of their trusting in Christ by being immersed in water. They were formed into a church. You read in chapter 1, verse 1, they had overseers and, and deacons there. This church loved Paul. And as Paul preached the gospel in different places, this church regularly sent financial gifts to Paul to help support him. In fact, one of their men, a fellow by the name of Epaphroditus, uh, he joined Paul to help him and support him in his, his imprisonment in Rome. With that background, we can now come to this letter of Philippians. Paul is in a Roman prison under house arrest in Rome. And he thanks them, especially in chapter 4, for their support. Thank you for your help. Paul relays news about Epaphroditus, about his own life and what's been going on. 
He encourages them to live a Christ-like life. He warns them here about false teachers. This is a letter of friendship and exhortation. This is a letter of friendship and exhortation. And in this letter, as it were, from one friend to another, Paul does several things. And I'm going to walk through the entire book. In chapter 1, he tells us, this is what's been happening to me. But don't be alarmed. Don't worry. The gospel is going forth. In chapter 2, he addresses several things here. He encourages the Philippians, stay unified in Christ. Follow Christ's example. You need to live a Christ-like life, dead to the world and alive to Christ. Timothy's coming. Welcome him. Don't worry. I know you heard Epaphroditus was having a hard time. He was kind of sick, but he's doing a lot better. He's been faithfully serving the Lord here. Chapter 3, as we will see, be on guard and look out for men who call themselves Jews, but they are not. The big theological word you could write down here is Judaizer. That's the last time you'll hear it from me, okay? It's not going to be a key thing. But they are Judaizers. In chapter 4, he gives a bunch of different, really practical teaching, instruction, and admonition. And then he thanks them for the financial gift that they gave. Woven. And you know, I am not a cook. Um, I'm not a farmer. Grew up next to my grandpa's farm. I am not a gardener. And I am not a tapestry person who weaves. I show you, but I just don't know what I'm talking about. Woven through this letter of Philippians is the gospel. Woven through Philippians is the gospel. What exactly is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ forgives sinners. That Jesus Christ grants believing sinners a right standing before God. Gives them eternal life if they repent and they trust in him and not their own good works. Here in chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 1 to chapter 4 verse 1, another example of how the, the chapter and verse divisions, they're close, but it's not exactly right where it should be. The, Paul warns the Philippian Christians about these false teachers who say you need to trust in your good works for salvation, who think that Paul's wrong, who think that Paul's checkbook is really out of balance with his credits and debits. And you might say, well, that came out of the blue. Paul uses that kind of language here. Paul enters into the, the realm of accounting, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. And so he says his goal and his aim is Jesus Christ. The point of this is that those Jews, those wrong, false, unbelieving Jews, they had bad accounting. Simply trusting in Christ is the worst thing that you could do. They said, you need to get circumcised. You need to obey the Mosaic law. Uh, you need to become an Israelite. You need to focus on meticulously obeying the law. That's the only way you'll be accepted by God, those false teachers said. That's the only way to live. And your only hope is really depending on yourself. What did Paul say in response? At the top of your sheet there, you see the main point of the passage we'll be looking at 
Paul said in response that you must trust in Christ alone. What did he say about those who trusted in their works? Well, he said in verse 3, hey, if you want to do that, I can top you all. I can beat you all at it. Uh, I was circumcised the eighth day, born to Jewish parents, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, um, a Pharisee about the law. You want to talk about zeal? I persecuted the church. You want to talk about righteousness? I was blameless when it comes to the law. But all these things that you false teachers say are essential, he says two things about them in verses 7, 8, and 9. He says, first of all, they are not a gain. They're not a credit in my account. They're not a good thing to have. They're actually a loss. It's a debit. It's a debt. Furthermore, to take it out of the realm of accounting into the realm of gardening and farming, he says, these things are rubbish. It's manure. It's, well, we think of manure, we think worthless, but it's not worthless to a a gardener or a farmer. But this is not even useless manure. I mean, this is bad stuff. It stinks. It's horrendous. It want nothing to do with it at all. That which you called good, it's worthless. In fact, it's not only worthless, it condemns the soul. It cannot save the soul. Paul then, in verses 9 to 11 gives us three important truths about what's involved in trusting in Christ alone. The first truth in verse 9, be found in him, not having my own righteousness and so on. He says here, you must, number one, depend on Christ alone to be righteous before God. Depend on Christ alone to be righteous before God. So what does it mean to, as he says here, find, gain, and be in Christ? A few things here. Number one, You cannot depend on your righteousness or obedience. You cannot depend on your righteousness or obedience. He says here, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. Be found in Christ. That's looking ahead to eternity. Forever and ever and ever. Where do you think you're going to spend eternity? Where do you think you're going to be forever? Yes, most people, they say, well, I hope I'm going to go to heaven. There are only two places where you will be. The first, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're trusting Christ alone, you will be in Christ in heaven. And then when he returns to earth in his millennial and his eternal kingdom, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Eternal bliss. The only other option is, is away from Christ in hell, eternal suffering. And depending, he says here, on your own righteousness, your own obedience, it will never be enough to be with Christ. Your sin has created a debt that cannot be numbered. It is infinitely high. Why is that? We might think, well, my sin occurred in time. That didn't take long for me to do that. It's not how long you sinned. It's who have you sinned against? The one that you have sinned against is an infinite lawgiver whose righteousness is infinite in greatness. And that is the righteousness that you must have. 
Your debt is more than you could ever pay. The righteousness that you think you could earn up to try to, you know, bring up your goodness and make it equal to the badness will never get above zero. They're like filthy rags. No church, no religious service, no family connection can wipe away your sin or can give you God's kind of righteousness. Depending on your own righteousness will never be God's kind of righteousness. It might impress a lot of people. Wow, he's really spiritual. They're really godly, just looking on the outward. But it will always fall short. James said in James chapter 2, verse 10, Whoever will keep the whole law but yet stumble in how many points? One point, he's guilty of all of it. Number two, to be found in Christ means that you must trust, you must trust only in Christ. You must trust only in Christ. He says here that, that which is through faith in Christ, and he's referring to the righteousness, the righteousness which is only through faith in Christ. What is faith? Here's a simple brief definition of faith. Faith is receiving and resting in Christ alone for salvation. Two aspects of that, receiving and resting in Christ alone. Faith is the exact opposite of works. Works says, I did this. I earned this. I bought this. Faith says, I can do nothing. I have nothing for eternal life. Christ, he has everything. And I entirely rest on who Christ is and what Christ has done And I receive the gift of salvation that Jesus provides. He, Paul, uses that word gift several times in the book of Romans. To be found in Christ, number three, means that you must have God's righteousness credited to your account. Credited to your account. The righteousness which is from God by faith. The doctrine here that's being talked about is that of justification. He is, the believer is justified. This is a legal standing and position that you have. Uh, before a judge, you are declared righteous or you are declared guilty. Through Christ, a believer is freed from all of sin's guilt and punishment. Christ paid it all. And through Christ, it's not only that you're uh, Uh, the debits of your sin have been completely paid and you kind of stand before God with an empty bank account, that is not enough for eternal life. You need God's righteousness, the, the credit side of the equation. Where do you get that? You can't earn it yourself. That is also from Christ alone. Christ's righteousness is credited to your account. This is really spelled out in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. But we won't go there. But here he's, he's saying that it is God's righteousness received by faith. Now, an important thing. Justification means you have been declared righteous. It is a standing. It's a legal position that you have. It's not something that you kind of get righteousness infused in you. It's not an experience that you somehow like, wow, I can, I've 
this righteousness power in me. That's confusing it with regeneration and sanctification. Justification means you're no longer guilty and condemned. You're innocent and you're righteous. You must trust Christ alone to be right with God. It is the only way. You must trust Christ alone to be right with God. What are you relying on to be right with God this morning? Do you think that by sitting here that this gives you bonus points with God? You think by reading the daily bread each day that that helps you get a little notch closer with being kind to a stranger or letting someone in? Those are works. And they, Paul says, stink. They're horrific. They cannot save you. It is only Christ. You must rest in him and receive him. A second truth that Paul teaches us here about resting in Christ alone in verse 10 is that you must live for Christ alone in this world. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He teaches us here, number one, that Christ's resurrection power provides the ability to live a holy life. His resurrection power provides the ability to live a holy life that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Remember, justification is not an experience. It is a legal declaration. This, however, this verse teaches us about sanctification. And that is something that is a day-to-day experience. Knowing Christ in your day-to-day life means that you have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead available to you. I want you to think about that. In your day-to-day life as a Christian, you have the, the, the power that's available to you is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Think about that. A poor illustration to try to help us see. The Judaizers, oh, I used the word. I said I wouldn't use it again. Back up, erase that. Those false Jews, they said, you need to keep the law. That's how you grow in holiness. You can go the opposite extreme and say obedience isn't necessary. That's wrong too. As a Christian, you must obey, but you obey by faith. You're depending on the Lord to help you grow in him. In high school, last not only last century, but last millennium, high school, I drove, my main vehicle that I drove was my mom's car. It was a 1980 blue uh, two-door hatchback Honda Civic. Now, you look at those things today, 1980, Honda Civic, two-door. It looks like a bug. It's a really small kind of thing. had a five-speed manual transmission. It had a massive 81-cubic-inch four-cylinder engine. 
with 67 horsepower. It's not very big, but it was a stick shift and I figured out how to burn rubber and that little Honda Civic. I had a friend, she didn't have as nice and new a car as my mom did. She had a 1971 four-door Chevy, Chevy Caprice Classic. Um, her last name was Beestrom, and we lovingly, adoringly called it the Beestrom Boat. You could fit four Honda Civics in the Beestrom. This thing's a land cruiser. It was huge. It had an automatic transmission, and so I could always beat Joanne off the starting blocks. It had a four-barrel turbojet 454 cubic inch V8 engine with 365 horsepower. My car had four cylinders with 67 horsepower. I could beat her off the block, but it wouldn't be long before Joanne would just kind of cruise right by me. I thought I'm going to get her on this one hill. Be sure your sins will find you out and confession's good for the soul. Do not race with my car, young lady. <laughs> We're on our way up the hill. Whitneyville Road. I'm thinking I got Joanne now. I'm in third gear. I'm in 60-60. Sins are really coming out now, aren't they? The engine's whining. The tachometer's in the red light. Here comes Joanne, blows right by me, looks at me, smiles and laughs at me. I had no chance. That 454 turbojet V8 engine, her car had power. Mine sounded like a mosquito. <laughs> Christ's resurrection power, Christian works in your life right now. You have gone from literally dead on the side of the road to having, if you will, a turbojet 454 cubic inch V8 engine, spiritually. Christ's resurrection power enables you to live the new life because you've been raised with Christ. And you know what those false Jews wanted the Philippians to do? They wanted them to no longer trust Christ to live a holy life, but to rely on keeping the rules. Follow the list. Keep up your appearances. They wanted the Philippians to trade in their turbojet 454 cubic inch V8 for a, a dead mule. That's essentially what they wanted them to do. Number two, living a Christ-like life involves struggle in this world. It involves struggle in this world where he says the fellowship of his sufferings. This doesn't mean that you somehow uh, mystically participate in Christ's sufferings on the cross. That's not what that means for your sin. Only he did that. This is talking about your struggles and your sufferings in this world as you, as a saint, endure and experience a world that hates Christ. A world that's governed by Satan. A world that opposes Jesus at every point. 
And don't mean that this, don't, don't think that this means you just kind of you know, put your head down, you grit your teeth, and you just kind of barrel your way through life. What's your power? It's not the dead mule, is it? It's the V8 engine of Jesus' resurrection power. That's what gives you strength to not just kind of grit your teeth and barrel your way through life. That gives you the big picture perspective. Our sufferings, Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, are just a little bit of time. This gives you knowledge that Jesus is always present. Remember what Jesus promised? I am with you always. This enables you to rejoice in the Lord always. A third aspect of this is that number three, growing in holiness means living out the fact. Growing in holiness means living out the fact that you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. This really describes sanctification. I have described, uh, defined sanctification as growing more like Christ and less like the world through the Spirit's help and personal discipline. And Romans 6 gets into even greater detail on this. Christian, you are in Christ. And because you're in Christ, when he died to sin, you died to sin. When he rose from the dead, you rose from the power of sin to live a new life. Christ's purpose in saving you is that you would be conformed to him. Jesus saved you, Christian. Not that you'd kind of go through life on your own, but that you would work hard and strive, as he says later on in verses 12 and following, to be like the Lord Jesus. A couple of passages along this line. First, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. There it says, Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And we have Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Christian, Christian, you are, are, you are dead to sin. It is a fact. You are alive in Christ. And that means you must stop living like an unbeliever. You must continually live by the power that Christ gives you through his resurrection. You must trust in Christ alone to live a holy life. A third and last truth he gives in verse 11, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, is that you must desire eternal life through Christ alone. You must desire eternal life through Christ alone. We tend to think, Christians, uh, we tend to think of heaven as our eternal home. And so it can almost be like, why do I need a resurrected body? I'm going to heaven. I don't need a body in heaven. I just need to be with the Lord there and the angels and worshiping around the throne. Well, the problem is, is the Bible tells us that that heaven is not your eternal home. The Bible tells us that someday Jesus will come from heaven. This is Revelation 19. He will come from heaven to earth. 
and his army will come with him. That's us Christians. We will come with him to earth and he will establish a thousand year reign. And we will be on earth with Christ and rule with him. And that millennial thousand year kingdom, Revelation 21 and 22, will merge into the eternal kingdom, a new heavens and new what? Earth. You kind of need a body to live and move and serve the Lord on the earth. That's what we look to. That's what we look forward to. And don't get me wrong. I'm looking forward to heaven. Heaven right now. I am looking forward to that. When I will forever be with the Lord. But here he's talking about that resurrection from the dead. A few points here. There will come a time when every Christian's body dies. Why will that happen? I thought Jesus saved us. Well, we still have sin in us. We have a sin nature. We have the sin that affects its presence in our body. That will result in the death of our bodies. In the context here of what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3, it will not matter what your family past was, your genealogical roots. It won't matter if you've kept the rules. Those things will never protect you from dying. They will never enable you to be eternally free from sin and death. Number two, there will come a time when Jesus raises every Christian's body from the dead. It is guaranteed to happen. You can count on it. Jesus promised it. Let me give you a couple passages, mainly from, well, all from John 6. There's a bunch in the New Testament, but I'll just give you three from John 6. John 6, verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. John 6, verse 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Remember Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He who began a good work in you what will he do? He will bring it to completion. And that's what Paul is looking forward to. And so number three, when Jesus raises every Christian's body from the dead, they will forever be free from sin's presence. No struggle with sin. No temptation from sin. No effects of sin in our bodies, in our minds, in our spirit, in our relationships. And as we read in Jeremiah... God will dwell on earth with us and we will be his people. We will see him. No one will be found in Christ. No one will be found in Christ who thinks that he's done some really good things. That God will somehow recognize as helpful to your salvation. The only way to be right with God, to be justified, is by turning away from your sin and the righteous things that you think are going to give you favor with God. You have to repent and turn away from that 
and turn to Christ, receive Christ, and rest in Christ. What's the everyday result of that? The everyday result of repenting and trusting in Christ. The everyday result is continually, continually dying to sin and continually living to righteousness. That's verse 10. And your sure hope, your anticipation, verse 11, lies in the fact that a day is coming when Jesus will raise your body, a new body, a glorified body, completely free from sin, forever pure from it, completely conformed to Christ. Do you have a religious background? you have a religious life? Are you thinking that that is somehow going to get you through death to heaven? Don't. That is wrong thinking. That kind of thinking will make things worse. You cannot trust in your religion or your church attendance. You must trust in Christ. Are you trusting in Christ? Trust in Christ. Have you trusted in Christ, Christian? Christian, what's your goal in life right now? Is your goal, aim, desire to know Christ, like what Paul says here? Is it to live by Christ's infinite resurrection power? Or are you puttering through life in your own power, struggling to make it up that hill? What are you looking forward to in the future? What are you looking forward to in the future? Looking forward maybe to marriage? That dream job? Maybe a promotion or a raise? Looking forward to kids? Maybe grandkids? Maybe for a select few of you out here, great-grandkids. Are you looking, that's what you're looking forward to? You're looking forward to retirement? These are some good, some great things. But how long will they last? And as you're experiencing them, at the same time, there will be difficulties and problems in the rest of life that make the enjoyment of those things not as enjoyable as you had thought they would be. The thing that you should be looking forward to is when you are fully like Christ. We've learned from Ecclesiastes, we can judiciously, joyfully enjoy the things of this life as we fear the Lord, but they're not what we ultimately live for, is it? That must be the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that is the case, when you are fully, heart, soul, mind, and body, 100% in tune, and in line with the Lord, you're holding nothing back. You're not being held back. All cylinders are firing. There's no breakdown because you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul admonishes us. God admonishes us. I admonish you this morning. Trust in Christ alone.